Welcome to the latest episode of Jonesing for Jessica. If you're like us, you are Jonesing for Jessica Jones, and we're here to discuss the hit Marvel Netflix show. Episode by episode, we're up to episode 11, a.k.a. Got the Blues. Uh, joining me, as always, is my co-host, Alana. How you doing? I'm great. I'm great. Really excited about today's guest. He's someone whose work I've been reading for a very long time, um, especially his reviews of things like Adventure Time and whatnot. So uh, without further ado. I will do the introduction. All right. Uh, our guest is Oliver Sava. He's a Chicago-based Eisner award-winning writer that primarily covers comics and TV for the AV Club, where he writes episodic reviews for all of Marvel's TV series. Uh, he's written about comics for the L.A. Times, MR Books, and theater for the Chicago Tribune, Time Out Chicago, and Chicago Theater Beat. He's also currently working as a dramaturg, t- term I had to actually look up, uh, on an upcoming Chicago play, Prowess, about Chicagoans becoming vigilantes as a way of coping with their PTSD. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, this is really great. I just a heads up for anybody who's a new listener to the podcast. Each episode, we focus on one episode of the show. So we'll only be talking about the show through episode 11 today. We're not going to have anything about the final two episodes of the series. For those who cool. have to come back next week and the week after. So, yes. Um, we're yeah, there. So, you know, when I first reached out to Oliver about coming on the podcast, I one of the things I offered was if he wanted to do episode 10, or episode 11, and Oliver was very clear about wanting to do episode 11 and not episode 10, because he, like many of us, including myself, thought that episode 10 is not such a great episode. Yeah, absolutely. Before we keep going, I just want to say, I didn't win an Eisner Award. I did get nominated, but um, I just wanted to do a fast correction. Um, oh, I see, sorry, man, nominated. I, uh, I did not like episode 10 at all. I think it's the worst episode of the show. Yeah. So, yes. This one is not that, so it's better. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like episode 10 actually left a bit of a bad taste in my mouth, and I felt myself feeling a little bit resistant to this episode's charms, even though this episode is much more on track. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, um, my uh, fellow AV Club, Jessica Jones recapper, uh, Carolyn Sita, said it was torture porny, just uh, everything goes too far and too much death, too much mm-hmm. suffering, like no contrast, totally, totally bleak hour of no fun. <laughs> <laughs> and and this this a little more yeah. fun, just a little though. Yeah, I mean, in this episode, you definitely have it's definitely not torture porn and it certainly has a lot of, a lot more fighting than we've had in any one episode of the show. Like this has the greatest quantity of fisticuffs of any episode in the series. Wouldn't you say? Hmm. I think so. I really like the fight that Jessica has when she goes through the house mm-hmm. in, was that episode five or something? Whenever she sees Kilgraven house starts chasing him down. I think that's a really like, well choreographed fight. But, no, I do think in terms of just sheer impact, uh, the fight between Jessica and our favorite douche cop is <laughs> the, the the real showcase of the show. And I think a lot of that is because stuff gets destroyed. They just completely demolish that apartment. Uh, and it's 
it makes the fight really cool. Just close quarters stuff, yeah. damage, those are all little things that add up and they make a fight hit really hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's start at the beginning. Um, the episode begins with Jessica coming, coming to after the accident she had as a teenager. Um, and she's in the hospital room and God knows why the doctors have allowed uh, Patsy and her evil stage mother, mother, into Jessica's room, um, and they talk, and, you know, her mom's trying to convince her that they should adopt Jessica because, quote, change the Patsy conversation, because apparently Patsy is the subject of some sort of scandals already at this point. And um, we learn some interesting things in this episode about that whole family. It's, you know, it's interspersed with flashbacks between uh, her and Jessica really meeting for the first time, um, and her dealing with her family's death right away, and then what's happening in the in the current uh, episode of the show, and you sort of really it's an episode that's I think really very much built around the relationship between the two of them have there, and we sort of get a uh, you know a really rude introduction, a rude awakening to them in the beginning of this episode, in in the scene where you know they're the, they're actually the people who break it to to Jess that her their whole family is dead. And um, it's it's really awful. And we also get to hear the Patsy theme song on the television for the first time. <laughs> and I think we've heard like five different characters so far sing their own little version of the theme song incorrectly in little bursts because it's one of those horrible theme songs that nobody could actually get right. But the I don't know. I get that. Go ahead. I get that theme song stuck in my head. And it's only like four lines that we have. But when I watch this episode, it is just, buried deep in there. I think they did a really good job with that theme song. Oh, totally. You know, it's exactly like those shows were. I, it's funny, I was younger and that kind of stuff would come on. I'd always be like, oh, why isn't it cartoons? What to do to make it be cartoons again? So mm-hmm. I, I already hate it. Like, I hate that that's the kind of show she was on and I hate theme song. And I totally saw the theme song in the end of the good hour of television when I was a kid. Hmm. Yeah, it's it just works really well for, like, the Patsy Walker of the comics and, like, taking her evolution and translating it for, like, a modern context. I love the idea that she was a, a Disney Channel star instead of, like, a romance comics uh, idol or whatever. Mm-hmm. It, I think it's such a smart decision. But, yeah, the show, I'm sure, was insufferable. I mean, it's basically, it looks like um, Hannah Montana. It has to yeah. be like Hannah Montana. The, that horrible wig, like, mm-hmm. I feel like that's all super deliberate. Yeah, totally. And actually, we should talk a little bit near the end of the show about the Patsy, about the new Patsy Walker comic book, just because I have a couple mm-hmm. thoughts about how the sure. things work together. I know a lot of our listeners don't even know what we're talking about, but we will explain it to them later. Um, <laughs> so any other thoughts about uh, the sort of opening of the show, Brett? I think it's the, the strongest opening, I think, out of all the episodes. Um, yeah. And probably some of my favorite things in the entire series. I and mean, what's done subtly, I think it's done so well. Like you get the mother making a comment about um, clearly someone set a table on fire and that Patsy at, age what maybe 16 is yeah gotta, like, gotta be younger yeah like maybe 15 14 somewhere around there she's like yeah. maybe a teen um 
clean at this point. Like clearly she's winding up in uh, in tabloids a lot already at that age. Yeah. Um and she makes a comment the mother makes a comment of you know, or Patsy's like, I don't know why we're doing this and the mother's like, We're doing this to get you out of the press and getting you know, changing the conversation which is such a fucked up statement. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. And then it goes into, I think at this point where she was like, Patsy's going to save you, says it to Jessica at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there's just so much in that, like, what, maybe five minutes that adds so many layers to the characters and tells you so much about Jessica going up and why she got adopted and Patsy at that point. Um, I think it's it's really, it really kind of, it adds so much more to the dy- dynamic of those two characters yeah. Without spelling everything out. Well, because the whole thing that Patsy's going to say to you is that really this whole episode is the two of them saving each other, like back and yep. forth all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and Justin mean, literally saves Pat, Patsy at one point in this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like some of the like exposition in that first scene is not like the most smoothly integrated, but I think that it, it adds so much and we want to get that fast that yeah. I don't really mind that it's really convenient that they're talking about this right when Jessica wakes up. Um, and I I think the things I really like about the opening of this episode are how different it is from the opening of the last episode, which is like Kilgrave running down the stairs, bloody handprints, and just like fast camera and big crazy music and this this opening is so much slower. It does feel like a bit of a reset after the last episode. And I know some people don't like flashbacks, but I I really like them. I mean, I think it's just the easiest way to add a lot of dimension to relationships and show how these dynamics change. So, yeah, I was super down for that in this episode. It it also answers a lot of questions really quickly. Like, up to this point, we don't yeah. know why... Jessica was adopted and you know we don't know what the relationship between her and Patsy was in the past and it just it just adds so much in a quick easy way without having some like weird conversations it's smart it's really really smart writing I think mm-hmm. so the next we have our in the mo- in, back to the modern era is Jessica Jones is on the floor in that bar like dealing with her inability to, have, to save right. hope um, and actually, like, I, one of the things that I was struck there that I, even though I don't even think we could see Hope's face, but it was sort of reminded me of how, how much I think Hope has a very similar face shape to Trish. And I'm sure that that partially triggers some of mm. the immediate connection, you know, that Jessica has to her in addition to the fact that, like, she's a young woman who's going through something similar to what she went through. Um, you know, we have Robin flipping out and, oh, my God, I can't stand Robin and she needs to not be on the screen ever again. Um, the and I know, like, I sh- in the real worst. life, I should feel bad for her because she's been through hell, and she's so terrible that I cannot feel bad for her. Yeah, I actually did, like, a Twitter poll of who's worse, her or uh, Douche Cop, and Douche Cop actually won, which I was surprised because I I really can't stand Robin. And it's not like she gets, like, a good fight scene or something to redeem herself. And she, what, she, she lies to the cops at the beginning of this episode, and that's her kind of, like redemption moment and yeah. she has uh honestly she gets better from this point on but she's still the worst 
so it's like it never gets good. It just stays, it gets a little less bad. And the show really thinks that she's com- comic relief. And in this episode when she says, oh, let's go do it for Tablecloth Girl, uh, that's not funny. Like, that's clearly yeah. intended to be a joke, and that's not funny. Because yeah, it's really with Tablecloth Girl. Like, fuck that. I feel like the writing, the writing and the performance are so confused for Robin. And, I mean, I don't think that is the actress's fault. No, I it's not. I think she's directed yeah. that way. Mm-hmm. Like, we, like, we can see over the course of the show that this actress can modulate her performance. I think she's being asked to play really big as, yeah, this strange sort of comic relief, but it's like, what is the comic relief of her? And like, even before all the crazy stuff happens when it's just like her and Ruben and their strange, like too close relationship. Like I just didn't understand anything involving them. And I'm really nervous. Well, I think that the, like, the vitriol uh, Robin received will probably keep her from showing up in the second season, God willing. I just, I, but I, I feel bad for the actress. It's like everybody hates her so much, and it's, I don't think it's the actress's fault. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just, what can you do? You, you know, one of the things I noticed about this scene, so, is, like, you, you, you have a little perspective of the cop of the cops interviewing each of the witnesses of the suicide and escape. And um, I, you know, Jess had asked everybody to basically to keep to the same basic story. And I thought people would fuck up and they actually, they don't do the same thing as each other exactly, but they're all close enough for it to be a believable story that the cops buy and the cops do buy it. And I wasn't really accepting, expecting it to work. Uh, so I, I thought it was interesting because you have Jessica who has to rely on, like, she's telling people what to do, like Kilgrave, but she has to rely on their willingness to, like, respect her leadership and judgment for them to actually do it. And so, you know, they kind of do the best they can, and thank God it works. Yeah, I think that the show definitely has to take some liberties to wrap up the craziness that they set up at the end of last episode, Mm -hmm. and that's one of them, uh, but at the same time, like, Jessica's clearly the only person there that, like, has her shit together. She's the one that Kilgrave can't control. She has the authority in that situation. So I can believe everybody, like, immediately listening to whatever she tells them to say and then doing it. Um, I, I would say I think that's interesting in that in the, you know, the, the last time we saw these folks, they were, like, trying to lynch Jessica and hated her leadership and didn't want anything to deal with her and thought she was, like, going to get him into more trouble. And here we see all those people just kind of falling in line, being like, yep, you're in charge. Um, they learned their yeah, because, because the mutiny was really horribly written and made no sense. Because, <laughs> uh-huh. like, why would they all go behind Robin? Like, who is this random girl that is eavesdropping on our grief counseling group and is now trying to convince us to go after her neighbor? <laughs> like. Yeah. They took so many shortcuts in the last episode to get things in some kind of place. It was just uh, uh, so bad. I think she also has one of the most cringy statements in here where she's talking to the cop and she says something like mental illness is a horrible thing or something like that. And Mm -hmm. I was like, 
fucking bizarre statement. Like, just bad writing. Between her and Douchecop, I really don't know which I hated more in the series. It's a tough golf. It really is. So, Jen, I think that... Oh, you can go ahead. Mm-hmm. The, like, the mental illness line, which... Oh, gosh, what is it? It's like, I'm really bothered by mental illness or something. Like, yeah. I think it's supposed to be a joke because, like, is she mentally ill? We don't really know yep. what... Like, her, dyna- her dynamic with her brother is so strange and she's so... Yeah, I don't know. It's supposed to make us laugh. It does not make me laugh. So that's no, I did, li- <laughs> I did like her line where she was just like, someone tried to recruit me for a cult once. And I'm like, of course they did. Yeah. 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 And cults are real. I thought that was actually not a bad bit of dialogue. But, um, oh, so next we have to have Patsy playing the voice of reason in the car, which is, you know, a frequent Patsy job. Um and help, she's helping Jessica to get to the morgue. And, you know, she has some major lampshading when she explains the science on sleep deprivation to Jessica. Um, it's like, you're going to hallucinate things. I'm like, let me guess. Is, is Jessica going to keep staying up punishing herself and hallucinate things? Oh, she does. <laughs> um, but it, it's a very believable conversation. It's just such an obvious lampshading there. And then yeah. they go and they do detective-y stuff with detective-y, jingly background detective-y music. I do love the detective-y music that the show uses when people are going to de- go detectiving. Um, yeah, I, I and we also I'm beginning to also suspect, and they're doing this detectiving to find the body of of Kilgrave's dad, and the body starts to feel a bit like a MacGuffin to me in this episode, don't you think? Absolutely. There's mm-hmm. why does she think that? he's going to get killed. It's just a weird thing. Like, why... Why... I don't know. I guess I don't remember how... What happened with Albert at the very end of last episode. Like, did Kilgrave compel him to do something that seemed murdery? Um, because she's so fixated on this idea that he's going to die instead of thinking about the other possibility of him being used... And mm-hmm. looking for, like, why is she looking for Albert instead of Kilgrave? Which I think is where her focus kind of is, but not in the right direction. Like, she wants to use Albert's body to get to Kilgrave. But, like, why don't you just start looking for Kilgrave? Yeah. Start focusing on this guy that's probably mind-controlling people right now. Yeah. One point I wanted to add as a New Yorker is when Jessica is going down the list of hospitals to visit, she lists St. Vincent's, and I just wanted to be like, St. Vincent's closed because they turned it into luxury apartments. <laughs> like, the other hospitals that they listed were real, but St. Vincent's is no longer a hospital thanks to capitalism. So I should say no thanks to capitalism. Um, <laughs> good luck getting help now in, in that part of Manhattan. Uh I, I did think her joke about, like, keep an eye out for an older guy, head literally shoved up his ass, melted by acid. Like, Jessica listing all these horrible possibilities to the morgue attendant was actually funny. And I don't think that many things that are funny on the show necessarily land for me, but that one did. <laughs> yeah, those are interesting little conversations. And I guess I like seeing uh, Trish using her, like status to to get things done. Uh-huh. I guess another example of Trish 
not necessarily saving, but having a different skill set that allows her to do things that Jessica can't do. Yeah, totally. And Trish doesn't well, like I mean, of course, celebrity it's a privilege. at all. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And she doesn't like using her celebrity at all, but she pulls it out when she had to because Jessica made her do it, and she just happened to do it much more effectively. Um, yeah. What did you think about Jessica falling asleep on the sidewalk? I felt like the way she just sort of sat down outside the morgue that used to be, that's a club that used to be a morgue, which actually is also realistic because we do have coffin shops in New York City that, that, that are now bars. But um, she's, when she falls asleep on the sidewalk, I just looked really theatrically staged. Like, I'm going mm-hmm. to sit there now and fall asleep dramatically. Yeah, I feel like that's something where, like, that's becoming a bit of a theme with this episode. We're like, we like it, but there's a lot of things that seem so, like, obviously setting up stuff, like the speech in the car is mm-hmm. setting up this is setting up this hallucination that she's about to have when she falls asleep, and she then she thinks she sees Kilgrave, and, like, everything is so... I guess you can really feel the hand of the writer, which mm-hmm. is, I guess, what I'm trying to say. And at the same time, though, it is a lot more streamlined of a story than when we got last week, and it is more emotional of a story at the end. It just kind of takes a while to like walk up those steps to get to the point where the payoff is. Mm. I will say, as someone who has hallucinated from exhaustion before, that I felt like the way that was portrayed was really realistic, and it's an easy thing to overdo, and they kind of, like, threaded the needle correctly. Also, her coming to after having been hit, like, yeah, I mean, I guess shows do know how to handle that pretty decently now, Since, but I I, I did want to sort of contrast that being done well to the weird stagedness of her passing out in the first place. And I also appreciated the guy who yells at her as she's running off, who's going to pay for my truck? Because Jessica's still a jerk, like, endangered that guy. You know, she goes on to justify it later, like, he didn't try to stop or whatever, but, like, nobody told her to, like, be completely incapacitated and run in front of vehicles and, like, not, I don't know, it just seemed like a a moment of her continuing her anti-hero-ness. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't really think of consequences. Yeah. She just has to, like, keep moving because... She's so fixated on finding Kilgrave. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I When we go and we see Trish after that, and um, she's interviewing a rock flautist. I love that the, the, the name of the book that she's there to talk about is Blowing, a rock, like the biography behind the scenes with a rock flautist. And that's when Douche Cop comes in during the blowing mm-hmm. thing, which mm-hmm. I, I think has got to be significant. Because he's a blowhard. How so? Because he's a blowhard. <laughs> that's why. Okay, okay. Yeah. I took it as a totally, like, wink, wink, nod, nod, sexual innuendo joke. Well, it would be the other way around if that was the case, I guess. You know? I don't know. I just Maybe. Thought I think it was just like silly. Blow. It's so silly. Jazz flautist. That's just goofy. <laughs> <laughs> It was a weird, it was a weird dejected segment, but I don't know. I took it to be like that he's a blowhard. So, you know, I have to congratulate Trish because when Douchecap shows up at her office, Trish is like very resolute and strong, and like she's saying the stuff that you, if she was your friend, you would like want her to say to get the crazy person to leave, and it still doesn't work. 
I mean, he leaves then, but he tried, he pulls it out and uses it against her later because she gave him that leeway to be seen later. But she also had to give him that leeway to be seen later or else he wouldn't leave. So I thought it was a really good illustration of the kind of like counter manipulation you're forced to do when you're confronted by abusive men. Yeah, and I mean, that's so much the theme of this show, the way that a man can pressure you into doing something you don't want to do. Like, Deuce Cop does it in a different way than Kilgrave, but he's still doing it. And I mean, he's been doing that pretty much the entire time. He's been trying to dictate what Trish does because he can't dictate what Jessica does because she yeah. won't let him. I also thought the, the the interesting thing on this was with Simpson on drugs compared to uh, Malcolm and his drug habit. Um, I thought it was a kind of an interesting comparison between the two hmm. where you had Malcolm kind of, you know, being the neighbor and spying and, and not really being violent, but still being really kind of creepy and odd. And then you've got Simpson being really violent and over the top and both of it's due to drugs to some extent. Huh. Yeah, I think it's probably just like the type of drug that's being used to oh, yeah. where, I mean, yeah. I was assuming what Malcolm's on like heroin or yeah, he was on crack. Heroin. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was probably heroin. Whereas yeah. he's on like performance enhancing military yeah. stimulants. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely like, there's something there about like, substance abuse, which I think is like a through line of the show because Jessica's also kind of an alcoholic. They don't really address that that much. They don't like... I mean, I guess they talk about how it's a problem, but they never tried to like have her resolve it or tackle it. It's kind of just something there in the background. Um, Yeah. yeah, There's definitely a through line of like destruction via substance. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I want to give the show writers lots of credit for is I feel like the dialogue that they give Douche Cop when he's on drugs, like all of this recent dialogue, I thought it was really well done because you can see, like, you can see, and actually in salutations to the actor too, you can see him performing an attempt at acting like he's not high. Like all of these great moments of him like performing what he thinks a normal person should sound like while he's high. Like he, when he says, it's good for battle and bad for people you care about. Like that's such a great example of what a guy thinks he's supposed to say. And he says it exactly like someone who's like putting on this mask to try to seem normal when he's really got like, you know, one eye spinning in one direction and the other in the other direction. And there's lots of moments like that. So I think both the actor and the screenwriter who's doing his dialogue of him super drugged up has been doing an excellent job. Yeah, and I think this episode, again, does it so much better than the last episode where he's so much more aggressive and this killing machine, whereas in this episode he's a human, he's using different tactics to accomplish his mission or whatever, but he's there's a lot more modulation, but at the same time it's all really clearly performance. He's not fooling anybody. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I think he, and he thinks he is. Oh, God. <sighs> um, yeah, he's totally oblivious. Yeah. 
so next we have Jessica, you know, at, 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 at Trisha's place getting saran wrapped around her ribs, which I don't really know if that works, but there's a big, great bit of dialogue where Jessica explains, she's like, I heal faster. And Trish says, you'll heal wrong. And Jess says story of my life. And I was just thinking how that's such a great little summation of everything so far. Yeah. This was a good banter scene. I felt like there's just it's very quippy. They, you get that, like, the familiarity between them without it necessarily being as grave as like their conversation in the car earlier. Um, like the stakes are still high enough because she's being like taken care of. Or, but at the same time, you get like more of a sister dynamic mm-hmm. in their interaction and just in the dialogue, um, which it's, we have like that, that beginning point now so we can see just how far they come and every time we flash back we kind of get a little more of that journey of them becoming sisters. That's a great point. Um, and I want to get to that in one sec but just real quick is just totally foreshadows Luke being in danger when she says I can protect the one or two people I care about. And she she covers up Luke's existence for Trish, you know, to Trish again. But... Um, mm-hmm. This was the first time we'd heard her mention Luke in a number of episodes, really, and I think that that was there to remind us for when we see him at the end of the episode. Yep. So Jess spaces out into a flashback, which is this flashback of when she discovers her powers and almost immediately is then discovered by Trish. Um, And I love Trish's reaction to witnessing Jess's powers because she says, you're a freak. I mean, that in a positive way. And (laughs) I do think that Trish means that kind of in a positive way or maybe she thinks she's freakish but she quickly realizes like actually there's good things about it and like she can use it in that way and when Trish likes that Jessica acknowledges that her mom is evil like when Jessica says that her mom's evil Trish's eyes widen like that's her moment of realizing that she is understood by somebody and I love their Mm -hmm. deal at the end which is it's a deal I don't tell and you don't save me which is like such a classic line of abused people like when they when they're talking with friends and talking with other people who are not part of like their abuse um Hmm. like i've heard a lot of people reference that yeah i think that like those scenes especially as like i i just thought the way that they revealed jessica's powers was really well done um just it was in the bathroom, which I feel like is such a, uh, like a place that teenage girls go to hide. Mm. Um, and like, that's where she like, it's, it feels like her, her powers are kind of like a representation of her emotional state in that moment. Mm. Um, and like, I don't know, this might, this might be a little flimsy, but <laughs> just the way her strength manifests at a time when she's the most weak is really interesting to me. You know, I didn't think about this till just now, but also teenage girls in bathrooms, like, you know, having your period, right? Like there's that, mm. always that teenage, like a young teenage mm. trope is like running into the bathroom because you realize you have your period. And in superhero comics, dear listeners, 
Um, there's always been a strong comparison in the comics that are about the X-Men and other mutant characters about uh, having your powers develop at the onset of puberty. So, yep. you know, I actually have in my notes here, one of the questions I wanted to raise to you guys is, would this be better? Do we wish that Jessica was a mutant? I mean, she isn't because of ridiculous, like, rules that would make it impossible. And she's not a mutant in the comics anyway. But in the moment where she's having her, like, I'm a teenager and now I have powers, like, what does that mean? I, I, um, for the, I, I had to ask myself, like, would it be better if she was, a, if she was a mutant and not just like, I don't know where my powers came from. <laughs> we'll use the word freak because we don't have language for this and things like that. I don't think that. I don't think I want her to be a mutant. I don't think that her, like. I think it's so important that the tragedy is what gives her the powers, which is such a, like, a superhero trope as well. I mean, it's Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's not, like, splashed by chemicals or hit by a radioactive isotope. Like, there's really, the yeah. show doesn't really give you any of that. And th- th- I guess that's also a thing that is so much more explicit in the comics, like, that she yeah. just gets, like, showered. And it's, I guess this isn't a spoiler, but it's an intentional mystery. We are not supposed to know that period, I don't think. Um, Okay. Because I think they want to address that later. Um, But, like, I just think that there's something about her being a completely normal person that doesn't have an X gene or the mutant gene or whatever. She just finds herself, like, unwillingly pulled into this world via tragedy, which is how so many of these characters are pulled into this world. I think once it becomes more ingrained, the some of the metaphor might get lost in, in exchange for a different metaphor, but I like mm-hmm. what they have going. Okay, cool. Any thoughts, Brett? I was going to say, for her, it might be better... Um, if she were a mutant, but I, I wouldn't want it for a, a character. I think it would change way too much. And just there's, there's something that's missing. I mean, the fact that she's not um, allows you to kind of explore these things in a totally different way than the normal ways we tend to think about X-Men and mutants and all of them. I think it kind of puts you down one path when this will can possibly take you to another one. I mean, in some ways in the comics, she's sort of set up as like a mirror to Spider-Man, which means that she too has to get her powers in an industrial like accident of some kind and not actually be like a born mutant. So I don't want to go too far down the path of comics, though, because I know a lot of our listeners don't know them, although they should totally check them out, but it is not required. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so it's a deal. I don't tell and you don't save me. You know, I I almost wish we got to see more of, like, you know, this is the moment where they stop being enemies, but I I do hope we get to see eventually more of the transition in which they start to become, really become friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it would be cool to see, like, that period when Trish is really spiraling, because we know it's going to happen. Um, and I think that's probably when her and Jessica became super close. Um, 
But, I mean, we don't know that for sure. That's just me guessing. Yeah, it makes sense. But at the same time, I'm like, at a certain point, these younger actresses, like, can you have these same actresses playing 18 or 19? Like, when does it get to the point where they don't look enough like the adult version of the character that it becomes an issue and they can't flash back to that period? Good point. <laughs> I guess Rachel but, Taylor, like, they both look pretty young, though. Like, Kristen Ritter has such, like, exaggerated features that with the right makeup she can look 10 years younger. Yeah, maybe. Is, is maybe. that a good logistical question you raise? I don't know what you do about it. Um, There's one, I don't know. remember what the line is that, um, her younger version says, but she sounds, and the way she delivers the line sounds so much like Kristen Ritter. Um, it was really the first time for the the actress and the character that I was like, oh, wow, she really does seem like a, a younger version of her, and I really wish I remember what the line was and how she delivered mm-hmm. it, but listen to it again today, I, like, I actually popped and looked at the screen, and I was like, wait, it sounds so much like, you know, Ritter, and yeah. I, will, I need to double-check. It's really good young Christian River casting. Just yeah. appearance-wise, personality-wise, they did a really good job. Yeah, it's hard because she's not generic-looking. You know, she's just different. No, yeah. so it's hard to yeah. deal, like, find a, a look-alike of any sort, really. Um, so, uh, we have Jess doing more sneaking around a morgue, the sneaky music, being a detective, etc. cetera. Uh, just mm-hmm. covering the two... Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just laughing. Oh. Sneaky music. <laughs> Yay. I made a joke and it landed. Um, so uh, we see that there's two burned bodies. Um, and, you know, she's left and Trish, like, calls her to be like, next time you need to go to the hospital to drive yourself because she's frustrated at all of this disappearing and whatnot. But, um, you know, like, there is some real de- – Jessica does some real detective work in this episode in terms of mm-hmm. – sorry, in terms of figuring out um, – the real, who, who killed Lester Freeman? Um, mm-hmm. uh, what's his name on the show? Not Lester Freeman, but regardless, <laughs> who yeah. killed the good detective? Um, um, Clemens. Detective Clemens, Clemens. Thank you. Uh, anyway, who killed the detective formerly known as Lester Freeman? Um, and I, I guess I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself right now. But that, that, but those, the roots of that do begin in this scene. Um, we get to see then Douche Cop is in the hall. Uh, again, outside of Trisha's apartment, being unwanted and creepy. Um, and he does the whole, you said I could come by later, which is like completely manipulative words straight out of the mouths of men that like I've said this to friends of mine. Like, mm-hmm. they did their work. And he did the whole, I don't want to lose you because of some bad medication. Like, he just keeps performing being sorry. And she's just too smart to fucking buy it. And he's very clearly playing her just to get information about Jessica. Like, he really must think that he is a genius and that she is an idiot because it's pretty fucking obvious. But I just thought that was such a good and creepy and upsetting scene. And the doctor's thugs show up. And I, I was really worried for Trisha's life. I was scared they, they were going to shoot her and him and everything. And mm. uh, he pops some pills, two red pills, and he gets like all bullet time on them almost and <laughs> before they shoot her 
Um, uh, yeah, and uh, you know the army thugs are just standing there saying like, no one wants to hurt Patsy, like mocking her. I, I it, it was especially because I know in her eye, in their eyes she's just potential collateral damage. Like they'd probably shoot her as a witness. You know, like them saying that just really disgusted me so much. Um, I also really noticed how much like one of the things that Dushkap does when he's on drugs is he repeats words right after each other. It's kind of an yeah. interesting tick. Or as he would say, it's kind of an interesting, interesting vocal tick. But anyway, any thoughts on the scene, guys? My big thing was how do they found uh, how the the other guys found him. Like it's never quite. I don't think it's really ever explained, or unless I would just mm-hmm. missed it. Was they just kind of show up? I mean, it's a place I would look, I guess. Yeah. And then I don't know, like, why would they necessarily know he and Patty were together? I don't know. Maybe he's microchips. Well, yeah, that's a possibility. It was just that was my only thing, like that. And then there's the scene later when he gets grabbed um, after being knocked out. Yeah. Um, that I was like, how did they find him? I mean, the first thing I think when I watch the scene is how bad Trish's doorman is. He's the worst <laughs> doorman in the entire world. She mentions it. She's like, I need to fire that doorman. She needs to fire. She needs to fire like five weeks ago. Yeah. And then, I mean, maybe those other guys afterward killed him, and that's how they came in. But he probably, probably just let them in. He's a horrible doorman. Yeah. It's true. Uh, but beyond that. Uh, uh, so much. There's so much douche cop in this episode. Um, so it's it's all just kind of like biding time until Jess and Trish kick his ass. Um, <laughs> but like that, like that, the the repeating words, vocal tick, is like I feel like his performance was already a tell that that he's on drugs, that they don't need to have this even more super obvious tell that he's on his drugs. Um, but I think it works, especially, like, the when when those two guys get shot. Like, that's definitely a big, like, oh, shit moment. Uh, but, yeah, we're just getting to that point where he finally gets his comeuppance. I like this, the long take of... Um, you see the tracks of blood going through Trisha's hallway and into her apartment. And the whole scene is set up to make you think that Trish is dead, but I was pretty sure it was just from him dragging the two guys. And, um, but I thought it was a good moment of suspense and maybe some people were a little fooled. I don't know. I, I saw it coming, but I love the next bit where you see that she's been locked in the room and her, she, she's been locked in her own safe room and or panic room as it were. And Douche cop is saying, I take care of things, Trish. It's what I do, you know, because he's a man. And then Trish takes care of things because she goes and she takes weights and breaks down the door because Trish actually takes care of things. And that's actually what Trish does. Mm-hmm. So take that, man. I, I just thought that, like, that little contrast and, like, how he feels like he needs to define himself that way when it's just not true. He just fucks shit up. You know, but it's his self-image. His self-image is that he is a man who takes care of things. I guess anybody feel on that? But, um, 
And I love Trisha's resourcefulness, like grabbing those weights to break the hinges off. It's pretty damn smart. Yeah, I mean, Trisha's, um, she's really competent, which is, like, why I'm eager to see her, like, ideally step more into a hero role in the second season. I mean, that's, like, her comic background makes me think that we might see her get a little more vigilante mm-hmm. Um because she's really good at stuff. Like, she's good with people, but she also can, like, kick ass, and she's fairly good under pressure, too. Um, and, we certainly, mm-hmm. and we certainly learned in this episode how much she likes kicking ass. Um, we'll get to that when that scene comes uh, which actually is right now. I take that back. We can talk about that right now. <laughs> um, you know, he like you know he shows up at her at, at Jessica's apartment. Jessica, you know, basically out detectives him. She figures out really quickly by playing him that he's the guy who shot Clemens. I said it right this time, right, Clemens? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it takes <laughs> her no time at all. Yeah, to so like outsmart him using a bit of detective work, and then it's time for the Battle Royale fist fight, close quarters fist fight, which is sort of like, that's sort of like the thing that Daredevil really was known for, in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I mean, this this fight isn't anywhere near that that fight, but no. I also think that I also think that's probably the best action sequence that has happened in the Marvel Universe. Like, even in terms of film, like, I guess there's, there's what, there's some really solid stuff in Winter Soldier. Yeah, I love Winter like, Soldier. The, but no, it's true. The hallway fight scene in Daredevil, episode two, is out of this world. People should all go watch it if they haven't. Yeah, it's just so, like, the, the way that they presented it, it, the action so well and made you feel the space and like feel all of the pain and the exhaustion you got so in that space that uh, it was completely like unlike so much of what we get from Marvel which is like big bombastic explosive CGI everywhere like this was just really visceral and it was really beautifully filmed too, um, like having it all in a single take. Whereas this is a lot more chaotic in Jessica Jones, but uh, still very effective. Yeah, I mean, looking at all those apartment walls getting broken down, I also just wanted to be like, oh yeah, like normal humans could probably break could easily break down the apartment walls of like any building I've lived in until the one I live in now. So hmm. I was half expecting the walls to be full of old newspaper and dust because <laughs> classic New York building construction. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's a very good fight scene and it made me think back to daredevil in comparison, even though the daredevil scene was better. Uh, but that's not what I'm here for. Like I'm not watching Jessica Jones for fight scenes. I really, yeah. You know, like that's not what it, it's just not what it's there for. I, I, it needs to have them, or else it isn't a superhero show. But it's not like the point. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And you know, Trish I mean, takes like, the uppers. Sorry, go ahead. It's just that, like, yeah, I expect Daredevil to give me those like really great action sequences, 
whereas it feels more like uh, like a nice treat when Jessica Jones gives you one. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I didn't know this was going to happen, but it did, and now I have a little bit of action. Totally. Yeah, that's good. And we have to, you know, Trish, like, takes the pills, uh, the red pills that she'd pocketed off douche cap and completely knowingly risks her life. And I, and, you know, when he said, when the cop says, without the blues, you'll die. And she, she just, she just stabs him with some bathroom implement and says, worth it. And God, I love her so much. That's so amazing. And I really felt watching that scene that she sounds and feels just like the Patsy Walker character, like an R-rated, I guess you'd say an R-rated version of the Patsy Walker character that is been getting written lately, like the one that Kate Les is writing now in the Patsy Walker comics and the one that shows up a lot in She-Hulk. Like, mm-hmm. I was talking to um, a friend of mine who doesn't read comics at all about the series the other day and just saying, like, that, you know, the things that Patsy does in the TV show, like, she has a very different role in the TV show than she does in the comics. But her personality is very much intact. Yeah, I think that there's a, like, there's a feistiness to, like, Patsy versus Trish, um, which I think, like, Hellcat is such a, like, it's indicative of her personality. Like, she's just a more fiery character, I guess red hair, too. But, um, and I do think that this that's the moment in this episode where you kind of see that, side of Trish finally uh-huh. get engaged and it's really exciting like it's very cool to see her I feel like a thing that we see with Patsy in the comics um, especially in her like in her more recent appearances is sort of throwing caution to the wind and um, just uh, like not restricting herself and that was what Trish does when she takes a bite out of that pill. Yeah. And I'm secretly hoping that it like has long-term effects that give her like enhanced, uh, like strength or I don't know, senses, whatever. They can make some powers up. Why are Hellcast <laughs> powers in the comics? Ill-defined. Ill-defined. It's going to say Hellcast powers <laughs> are ill-defined. So, but uh, but yeah, folks who absolutely know what I mean, what I'm talking about. There is a Patsy Walker comic series that just began. It's only on issue two. It kind of feels like inspired by Archie and the modern Archie comics in a good way, and uh, it's really good. And folks should check it out. And it's not dependent on really knowing anything else about what's happening in comics either. Yeah, so. I'm really liking the new Patsy Walker book. It is very fun, and I think it does. Um, yeah, a really good job of negotiating all of the different Patsy Walkers that have existed over, what, 70 years. Like, Patsy is such an old character, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of why I love that she's in Jessica Jones, too. They could have chosen a lot of characters to fill that Carol Danvers spot, but they chose Patsy. Yeah, it was a, it was a real question when they began the show because, guys... In the comics, the character who plays Je- Jessica's best friend is a character who Marvel wasn't going to put in the TV show because she's going to be, God willing, in her own movie in a million years in the future. So there was always this open question of who was, was Netflix going to use as Jessica's best friend. And um, 
you know, I, I, it really was unclear to me, like, well, why particularly Patsy? And I, I felt like, I mean, why not? But I would have, I'm a huge Spider-Woman fan, so of course I was hoping it'd be Jessica Drew, mm. but I realized that because she has Spider in her name, it was unlikely that she, they would be allowed to use her. Sort of uh, true. Yeah, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I love the, the relationship between Jessica Drew and Jessica Jones because Jessica Jones was originally supposed to be Jessica Drew, I believe. Yes, like right. Bendis wanted to do a Jessica Drew comic, and they just made up a new character. And then Jessica Drew shows up at the end of Alias, or like towards the end, not actually right at the end. But um, yeah, I am kind of waiting. I'm, I'm. I think that Jessica Drew is probably Marvel property. Um, sure. Although I, I have no idea, but I like. I have wondered if they could use her without using Spider, honestly. But at the same time, they have Spider Man now. So, oh, yeah. why would they? Well, like, so the, I guess. Yeah. Go ahead. The, the leaked Sony emails laid it out. Um, so, Marvel had the rights to Jessica Drew as a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, but not Jessica Drew as Spider Woman. Uh, uh, which is I was expecting like, I'm expecting Jessica Drew to appear in something like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. honestly and then they yeah. can just say her powers come from her being an inhuman or like I feel like they could figure out a way to interpret her very um, convoluted comic book <laughs> backstory into something that works on TV, especially because she has Hydra connections. She yep. has... Yes. She was experimenting on the Hydra. Enough said. Yeah. Done. I mean, exactly. Like, her parents are mad scientists. Like, evil mad scientists with Hydra. I think that's all you need to... Yeah, I love her so much. But and Her and, you know, costume also... right now is so... Sorry. Go ahead. I'm just going <laughs> to stop talking about Jessica Drew. <laughs> I know. I feel bad for our listeners. Also, to our listeners, don't buy the new Jessica Drew comic. It will only make you sad. Don't do it. No, I like it. You don't like Spider <gasps> Woman? Oh, my God. It's so not okay. I liked it before the relaunch, but, like, my life does not need pregnant Spider Woman. Oh, see, I don't. I like the pregnant stuff, but, I mean, I can understand why people don't, but I think it's well-written still, like, and I don't, like, I'm not so... I'm just, like, I'm not super, like, committed to the idea that Jessica Drew hates having children. But, I mean, I'm a man, so what the hell do I know? Uh, but, like, <laughs> it just doesn't really bother me. And I like I like that team so much that I'm, I'm enjoying it quite a bit. Uh, I, I, would, I would love to have pregnant superhero woman comic so much. I don't want it to be Jessica Drew who does not want children to suddenly be like, I'm going to have kids. Like, I'm so tired of it being narratives where like women just decide they suddenly want children. I don't need that. But I do think that having a pregnant superhero would be a cool story to do. Uh, maybe they could do something useful with Susan Storm for a change anyway. Um, so back to the TV show. I apologize to folks who don't read the comics. Uh, Although I have frequently said on the show, like people definitely who enjoy this show should read the Jessica Jones comics that came out. But they're called Alias Jessica Jones, and they are excellent, and they stand alone, and you would like them, I'm sure, if you like the show. Yes, so, I, I was kind of disappointed that the show didn't take more inspiration from the comics in terms of giving Jessica cases, standalone cases, to uh-huh. kind of get like two cases throughout the entire thing and then the rest of it's all kill grave. Um, yeah. 
but mm-hmm. they have to do. Now, that's definitely something we have raised as well on the show. Um, I want to point out that in this episode, Jessica Jones calls an ambulance for the first time ever. Maybe Good she called her. one on Hope's She's growing up so fast. Wait, did she call one when Hope's parents? No, she didn't even call it when Hope's parents were shot because some neighbor did. So, like, Jessica Jones like, the only person she's willing to call an ambulance and, like, deal with authority figures for is Trish. So, that makes sense. Indeed. And then we have a flashback. Stage mom is trying to make Trish barf, which is, like, of course she is, you know. Um, and, you know, Jessica, like, we've seen that before. It just kind of felt like, of course, this is going on. Yeah, but it's also because, like, it's ra- it's re- it's realistic. I mean, true. Do you know what? Like, we've seen it before because it makes sense. So I'm okay with that. I almost like other things might not have made sense. You know, like, I mean, the the woman who plays stage mom comes off as performer e, but I also fully believe that this is a character who's probably spent her whole life on stage and therefore just acts like that normally at this point. You know, she has a bit of an air. Yeah. I'm acting. But I, I believe that people like her do sort of sound like that. Yeah, and I totally know. Um, I know people like that. Mm-hmm. In like, I guess just my my scope is a little more limited. It's like Chicago theater, but I know so many people that carry themselves in a, a very similar way. Um, the thing that got that excited me about um, the Dorothy Walker casting is that it's. It's Rebecca De Mornay who is the the lead in Risky Business, mm-hmm. which I had just seen like a month before watching Jessica Jones, and I was like, "What has she been in?" Like, I really liked the movie. I had never seen it before, and then uh, like she hadn't really like that was her biggest movie. Yeah. Uh, and then I was like, "Here she is on Jessica Jones." Thirty years later, uh, so. I was just excited to, like, see an actress who I had just, like, kind of discovered for the first time in something. Um, And, I mean, it's cool that we have, like, an older woman on this show, too. We have, like, the the show just has such a a richer female cast than anything in the Marvel Universe. Like, I guess Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has a lot of women in the cast, but I don't think they're... Like, their stories are quite as engaging as what we have on Jessica Jones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I hadn't realized that's who it was. That's interesting. It's sad she didn't have more work in between. She was really hot. She um, was little, but not much. She did. She did work. But, like, it was nothing, like, I, that I had really seen or anything. Like, it was, mm, yeah, no yeah, no big There was, big like, a couple follow-up. years she was, like, a hot actress around Risky Business and then she just, like, disappeared. Yeah, which I feel like is, I mean, that's, like, Hollywood for women, too. Like, (laughs) as you get older, you just disappear, whereas if you're a guy, you can just keep on doing work and we'll keep casting you. Like, I feel like, especially if you get, Uh like, if you break out as a sort of, like, a, I don't know, early 20s sex symbol, that is there's such an expiration date on that role you can play. Yeah. I'm looking up. It's actually blowing my mind. It was like oh, there's almost a decade between Risky Business and Backdraft and The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, which is the other two films that 
like I really know her from. Damn. Yeah, I didn't realize there was that much difference. And Hand That Rocked the Cradle, is she the mom in that? She was, I'm trying to think, she was the, I don't remember if she was the, the, she was like the babysitter that's like psycho. Oh, okay. She's like the one who's trying to take over. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She's playing a young character in that. She's not playing the older character is what you're asking. No, no, no. She's the crazy one in that one. Uh, Fun times. God. (laughs) That movie sounds problematic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> really? I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> um, what are you talking about? It's totally empowering. Uh, yeah. So, Trish says, you promised not to save me, which I just, again, like such a good bit of dialogue, and Jess says that she can't help it, which is sort of, again, mm. like sort of calling back frequently to how Jess is like called to being a hero, even if she doesn't want to have to be. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's such a a superhero trope. Like, once you have the power, you have responsibility. Like, she has to do this now. Um, I don't know exactly, like, where Jess gets this sort of, like, where her moral foundation comes from, but, like, I can see her deciding to use her abilities to help out, especially, like, her fellow woman. Um, Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It seems like from very early on, she establishes herself as, like, a protector of women specifically. Which, I don't know if that... It's not, like, an intentional choice on her part, but that's just kind of the role she's cast in Mm -hmm. coming to Patsy's rescue. Yeah, yeah. And Patsy comes to her rescue in this episode, too. It's all, I just, like, love that. They're just always helping each other back and forth and, like, being there with each other when everything goes to shit. Um, like, they are just, like, always have each other's backs. And, you know, even when they had that estrangement period, like, they were able to move past that. It's a really, really great to have a strong female relationship like that as the center of the show. Do you watch Supergirl at all? No, but Brett does. I like it so much more when it's, like, centered on family versus romance, which they, Mm -hmm. like, they lean into the really not good love triangle way too often. But, like, when they focus on, like, specifically Kara and her sister's relationship, I really enjoy it. Like, and those are, and it's really because, like, I'm so starved for, like, strong women relationships in, uh, like, in my superhero media. Uh, it's, it's just so sad. Like, especially, like, with Marvel stuff, where they are so bad at female friendship. Uh, it's so refreshing to like uh, see two women talk to each other and support each other and have their own stories and like it doesn't necessarily involve a man every time and like that's what we get from Jess and Trish like it feels like a a, a watershed moment 
for Marvel getting a, a female friendship that is this deep. Again, I think there's like some there's some really good like relationships between women on Agents of Shield, but like the craft on that show is at such a lower level that like Jessica, it just feels more important. Yeah, I I, I don't watch shows with like I basically watch cartoons, so I don't have like a ton of shows <laughs> to cross references to at this point. But I think that if there were more shows that did this, I might find them more of them appealing, especially if well, they were also animated. But anyway. Yeah, like in terms of cartoons, it's like why is Steven Universe such a gigantic hit right now? Because, like, it's a show with a huge female cast. And people are starved for, like, specifically female superheroes and, yep. like dynamics between multiple female superheroes like you don't just want one you want to see them interacting with each other and like in steven university you have a huge amount of them like yep and i i actually feel like steven universe is called steven universe almost in a stealth way to like get past the fact that people would like never approve a show that like had a female title you know Mm -hmm. they wouldn't have made it crystal gems or whatever Exactly. If it was called the Crystal Gems, parents would be telling their sons that they couldn't watch it. And mm-hmm. the executives would never let it get made. But because they call this show that has a 90% female cast, uh, Steven Universe, after like the one male character, who is wonderful, um, it, the show gets to be made and parents don't tell their kids that they can't watch it. Sorry, parents don't tell their sons that they can't watch it. That's my theory. No, I, I mean... Probably true. I definitely don't think you're wrong. Like... It's not, like, it's also not, like, marketed as a girl's show, but I also think Cartoon Network is pretty good about not marketing those, like, their primetime stuff to a specific gender. Like, Adventure Time, all of those shows, like, they are very gender neutral. Although, in terms of content, most of them skew male. In, in terms of the sheer number of characters that are, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, in terms of just the amount of characters that are male. Yeah. But that's true. They don't really try to hypergender their stuff that much. But yeah, I think, I think that's a great point with um, Stephen Universe. That show is... Brett doesn't watch these cartoons, but Brett is making a seriously bad life choice in that matter because <laughs> I think Stephen Universe is kind of the greatest thing ever. Um, and we 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 should do an we should do an episode on this because we haven't uh, not as part of this but as part of graphic policy we haven't actually done that yet. But anyhow, um, we 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 did have uh, one we did have Jesse Moynihan on actually from Adventure Time to talk about by and large his creator owned comic called Forming, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. But, we have not had anything about Steven Universe or really anything too focused on the cartoon shows themselves. Um, folks should definitely go read your reviews of them because they're awesome. Yeah, Jesse Moynihan has a really great episode tomorrow with Sam Alden. Uh, it is a really, really good one. Awesome. Looking forward to it. I mean, I, of course. I had to write my review nice and early because I have a ton of stuff that needs to get done this week. So Adventure Time got done early. Oh, 
I wish I could say the same, but no. Um, <laughs> so yes, definitely check out Oliver Savo's writing about cartoons, especially. Um, let's want to wrap up the last moments of this particular episode. We have uh, Jessica. I like that Trisha says is concerned that her mom now knows about Jessica's power, and you know they've given us a good reason why in their earlier scene. But I appreciate Jessica's bravado when she says that she's glad her mom knows because that means that she won't fuck with them anymore, basically. Um, and that's definitely a change in Jessica's self-image, really, within within her childhood, like in those scenes. We're going from not wanting her mom to know to saying that, yeah, she has powers and that makes her more powerful. We have a last bit with um, Malcolm uh, and being upset that Jessica has not given updates to the survivors crew and he's upset that the survivors crew hasn't stuck around and he has a bit of a dark night of the soul with Robin, which he needs, you know, who needs to stop. And I like, can't even talk about her at this point, but um, you know, Malcolm basically explains like why he tries to hold on to hope and how he needs to hold on to hope to survive. Yeah. I, I never really connect with Malcolm throughout the series. I think it's, I don't know. I understand why he's so fixated on things, but I also feel like he doesn't understand the stakes and he thinks that he needs to be a part of everything and, like, be in the loop when, like, Jessica has more things to worry about than keeping you posted on every little thing. Like, Malcolm's struggle just feels so much less important in the grand scheme of things, which, I mean, that shouldn't necessarily be the case. But, like, he's he's so aggressive with Jessica, and, like, it feels like he oversteps boundaries a lot, um, like when he tells Luke Cage about Jessica's tortured past, even though he yeah. totally shouldn't. Um <laughs> Like, that when when Robin gives him this talk, I was like, this is, this is what he needs to hear. Like, he just needs to, like, mind his own business for a little bit. Uh, but now I feel like I'm coming off as super evil. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm. You're right, but I also feel bad for him. Yeah, I mean, like, and then he's like, because this one he talks about moving, like his his home and his parents and stuff, and it's like, why did you move to New York? Just move back home if you want everything to be nice and easy again. Like, although is he from? I guess I don't know. Remember the specifics of where he's from. Long story short, Malcolm, I I'm playing the world's smallest violin for him, even <laughs> though he does. Uh, he does get put through some horrible shit in this series, so I really shouldn't be so mean to him. <laughs> he gets yeah. used and turns into like a heroin addict. I know, he just wanted to be a social worker, damn it. I mean, that's the thing. Like, Malcolm is all about helping this group process things because that's kind of what Malcolm wants to do for a living, anyway. Mm, you, totally just, you totally just blew that character wide open for me. Like, that's just what he wants to do for an occupation, but. At the same time, like, 
I often feel like jumping to Malcolm and Robin feels like a distraction from, like, the real story. Mm-hmm. Like, just move on, and I, I, it doesn't get better. The writers with a lot of the side characters like him were kind of like, we need we need these characters to move the story along, but we don't know what to do with them beside that function. Yeah, there's just... Uh the supporting characters kind of lack that extra dimension that Trish and Jess have and like some even Luke like I mean even somebody like Douche Top has more like nuance and subtlety than Robin who has nothing really but yeah the the other residents in the building just feel so auxiliary. Yeah. I liked when uh, Malcolm had that moment near the end of the episode where he debates getting involved or not with the fact that there's like random people searching just a broken door apartment yet again. And he decides not to. Yeah. Like, and yeah. I mean, it feels like, again, I'm like, good. You're minding your business for now, even though this is the moment when you probably should care a little bit. But, I mean, you probably would have been killed if you tried to stop them or something. Like, we already know that these are horrible people. So he probably did the best, the, best, the, the thing that was in his best interest. Yeah, for his survival. Yeah, I think so. I think that he would have totally been offed and, but it was clearly that this was something which he had changed and done differently because of his conversation that he had had. Mm-hmm. Um, then we get to have Jessica gets those text messages from Kilgrave. First we've heard of in this episode and it's just text messages, no voice or anything else. And um, she rushes over to get to Luke's bar and, she gets to his bar, which, as we know, is 7B in the East Village. And uh, Luke's, he sees her. She sees him. He closes the window because he, you know, wants her out of his life. And the bar explodes and everything goes on fire. And he emerges from the fire. And him just walking out of the fire is, like, super powerful image. Uh, and I actually have no idea how the hell they staged that because that's a bar that people go to. Hmm. Yeah. Good question. I- no idea. I don't. I don't live there. But um, I think that's a that's a this is a pretty good ending. Like it it ends literally with a bang. Wah wah. But um, yeah, especially because we haven't seen Luke in so long that it's just really like it's just nice to see him again. Honestly, like you don't realize how long he's been gone until you see him again. I also actually had one other, and I'm I'm very happy to have him back because he's amazing. Um, One other sort of narrative thing that kind of happens through the episode I wanted to highlight is, you know, in the beginning of the episode, Trish is telling Jess she needs to get the fuck to sleep. Jess doesn't really go to bed until Trish is in the hospital. Like, it takes Trish being, like, unconscious in the hospital to to make Jess go to sleep. And you see Trish with her eyes open. She's sort of, like, smiling to herself, and I feel like she's kind of smiling because, like, Jess is finally asleep. At least that's how I read it. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you there. Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually what I have written down for this episode. Um, you know, I like I think I said earlier, I feel like in some ways the disappointment of episode 10 sort of colored my enjoyment of episode 11 in a negative way. But I, I do, you know, I do still really appreciate the show and I feel like it's, you know, a bit back on track and I'm really looking forward to seeing Luke in the next episode. Even though I have no idea how the hell they could possibly reconcile <laughs> given what she did to him in this show, which is not at all the case in the, the movie. I'm sorry, in the comics. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that you will, I have no idea if you'll, if you'll enjoy it or not, but it is uh, very interesting how they handle it. Hmm. Noted. I'm biting my tongue. <laughs> yeah, me too. Just I appreciate that. Saying the nothing. So, uh, thank you again for for joining us on the podcast. Uh, would yeah, love to, thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, I really have been a huge fan of your reviews for a long time, and you were on the short list of people who I really wanted to have for the show. So, oh, I'm really, for real, I'm really excited to make it happen, and I hope you'll come back and join us again, whether it's to talk about comics or television. Sure. Fantastic. Um, So why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you on the internet and beyond? All right. Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Oliver Sava. No space, just my name. Um, And most of my writing is at the AV Club, where I cover... Right now I'm covering... Agent Carter, Jane the Virgin, Adventure Time, Legends of Tomorrow. And I think that's it for the time being. And then I also do weekly reviews for comics and assorted other things. Uh, but yeah, mostly at AV Club, sometimes at other places. But right now I'm really uh, focusing on just doing a bunch of stuff for my home website. Good times. And you have a play coming up. Yeah, it's uh, so I was a theater critic for about five years. I this past year, it uh, just took a big dip in terms of reviewing stuff. I still do it sometimes, but uh, yeah, I have a really good friend who's a great playwright that is working on this play about. Uh, urban vigilantes in Chicago and uh, like a quartet of people that are taking uh, like matters into their own hands to stop this uh, epidemic of violence. And uh, they're all kind of, they've all been traumatized by city violence in some way. And they're all kind of uh, escaping into the vigilante fantasy uh, as a way of not really it's both a way of confronting and not confronting their problems. So, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of researching Chicago violence statistics and gang politics and police and systemic issues. It's a lot of fun. It's, uh, uh, but there's also comic book reference and 
thinking about vigilantes as real people, and I'm really excited for it. It uh, opens in May. I'm not quite sure what the exact date is. It's uh, with a theater called Jackalope Theater in Chicago. And, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to do that. Uh, Jessica Jones was really good prep for that in terms of kind of getting in uh, that PTSD headspace or, like, seeing a superhero interpretation of it. Awesome. Thank you. That sounds really cool. I know we're not in Chicago, but I know we have some listeners who are, and I hope they will check that out. Maybe Maybe it'll make it to New York. Yeah, I mean, he's um, he's a pretty legit playwright. So he's had stuff uh, open at uh, Barrow Street Theater. He had something like two years ago. He did a really great play about the Stonewall Riot. Uh, hmm. That was, it's basically like um, the anti-Stonewall, the movie that they just made, where it's like <laughs> all white twinks. Like yeah, it's yeah. a super multi-ethnic, like men, women, trans men, trans women, um, and at Stonewall, like it's a really, really great play. And yeah, awesome. he's been produced around, so it's very possible that sometime down the line, prowess, prowess is what the play is called. Uh, prowess might make its way toward you. Hopefully, that'd be awesome. Cool. Thank you again. That's really cool. We have the best guests, guys. It's just a fact. <laughs> yeah, thanks again for having me. I, I uh, love doing podcasts and talking about talking about media. It's <laughs> fun. <laughs> well, we'll have you again soon, so thanks again. Yes, absolutely. Yay. Talk to All you right. later. Good night. All right. Well, have a good one, guys. Yep, Thank you. you too. Thanks much. So Later. for our listeners, we'll be back next yes. week. Yes. Next Monday we have a brand new episode of Joning for Jessica with two more guests. Indeed. Uh, so next episode is a big Luke Cage episode, so the folks who watched the whole show have told me. And um, I've had a couple guests who I've wanted to have on for a long time who are joining us and who have different opinions of Luke Cage, uh, one of whom is um, Kendra Philip. Uh, and she's been on the show before. Uh, she was on the Martin Luther King Roundtable, and uh, she writes for Racialist, Racialicious. Blech, I cannot speak anymore. And um, <laughs> she's a big Luke Cage fan, as am I. Also joining us will be uh, Daryl Ayo, who was on our show pretty recently, actually, talking about um, art comics and, like, super indie underground comics and is a comics artist and writer himself. And he is a more of a Luke Cage skeptic, as it were. And so we'll be talking about the episode 12, as well as kind of talking a bit about what we like and don't like about Luke Cage in the, in the, in the movie, like what works in the show. I'm sorry, not the movie, and what works for us and what doesn't. Yes, it should be fun. Um, and that will be on Monday at our normal uh, time, I think, or is it 9 o'clock? It's at Don't. 9 o'clock. 9 o'clock, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. I was about to say, oh, a normal time. I'm like, no, I don't think that's actually the case. Uh, yeah, so we'll be on at 9 o'clock, not, uh, not 10 o'clock. So you can catch us then, um, and I will get the uh, details up tomorrow. 
Uh, as far as this episode, if you came in late or would like to listen again, you can. It will be on iTunes and Stitcher a little bit after we wrap up as well as uh, Blog Talk Radio. And then uh, tomorrow it will uh, be posted up to SoundCloud and our website. So you can catch it there or uh, if you like it and want to share it around, you can do it that way. So uh, as always, thanks for listening. You can catch us every single day at graphicpolicy.com. Of course, we're on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, all the graphic policy, keeping it nice and consistent. Until next time, thanks for listening. I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. Keep it geeky.